Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Welcome to the next episode of my podcast, Innovations in Sustainable Finance. I'm Julian Kölbel, Assistant Professor at the University of St. Gallen. My guest today is Dr. Christine Chow, and we plan to talk about the art of active ownership. How does it work and how to do it well? Christine, it's a real pleasure to have you here. The pleasure is absolutely mine, Julian. It's so nice to reconnect. I remember we first met in Zurich uh, more than 10 years ago. Yes, absolutely. What a long time it has been. So, so it's great to have you here. You are currently the head of active ownership at Credit Suisse Asset Management. And can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of, you know, your experience in this area of active ownership? How did you get there? Sure. Um, I joined the fund management industry in the late 90s. And, you know, in, when we were at university, we learned about the principal agent problem between investor and company. And um, joining the fund management industry as my first job, I promptly realized that actually the investment value chain is very long. So I, I was wondering how the investment expectations, not only financial return, but the philosophy and ethical principles of the asset owners, such as uh, the pensioners, the savers, how are they being reflected through the products that are offered by fund managers um, and how do they communicate? Perhaps to start with, let's fix some terms. So, so there are several ways of describing this communication process between investors and, and companies, right? It could be shareholder engagement, active ownership, stewardship. There are all these different words. I'd like to ask you, how do you refer to it and what's the essence of that? For me, more broadly, active ownership or investor stewardship is... It's the meaning of being a carer. You care about what you invest in and how the capital is deployed, no matter what your position is. So I think the narrower definition of stewardship or active ownership back 20 years ago would be about, oh, we need to vote. Uh, we need to have a dialogue. We need to make sure that the, the board is independent. The, the, the documentation or the papers have come out through, through the years as early as the, the Cadbury review. Um, uh, if you remember the, the earlier papers that come out, they're all very governance uh, related because of governance failures um, in, the, in the 90s that, that led to sort of the foundation of this industry. But over time, stewardship, if you look at, um, so Stewardship Asia in Singapore, their definition of stewardship has different aspects. You have the corporate leadership type of stewardship. There's also the investor stewardship. So we're seeing more and more terms that describe this proactive element of being an investor. And it's not just about being a shareholder and vote. Um, if you talk to uh, experts uh, in the PRI community, sorry, this is a term again, the principles responsible investment community, the expectation is that there needs to be a stewardship or active ownership strategy for different asset classes. And that's also, um, you know, what my belief as well that active ownership should not just shouldn't be just about engaging with companies on board issues or dividend or audit quality and accounts and the different what we call ESG label issues, which is a term that I'm not so keen on uh, anymore because it is just too too vague. 
It should be about understanding what are the systemic issues that are affecting us as a society. Where are the levers uh, and who are the stakeholders that we need to talk to to drive that change? If I understand correctly, it's a lot about having a meaningful dialogue. And I see that both as having strengths and weaknesses. The strength being that this is very flexible, right? You can really, you know, dig into complex issues. You can create understanding. You can, you know, capture complicated strategic topics and and really sort of, yeah, have a dialogue uh, uh, between investor and, and, and management. The weakness perhaps is that this is a little bit informal. It's behind closed doors. So uh, from the outside, there's sometimes the suspicion that people might just meet and talk and then both parties walk away and say, oh, it's good that we talked, but nothing really has happened. And I also believe there are huge differences in the quality of active ownership that's being pursued by different institutions. So what would you say are the hallmarks of good engagement? Good question. Let me go back a little bit on how we categorize an engagement. An engagement should be a purposeful dialogue in which the investor has a theory of change in the way that there would be a specific ask of a company to perform a particular change and that the investor can justify why that change is relevant and material to, to the company and the investment itself. So, Starting from that basis, I think we need to, uh, as an industry, get better at defining what engagement is, because having that one line is not enough. So as you can see in the latest active ownership report uh, of Credit Suisse Asset Management, we have categorized engagement interactions into three types. So there is a flowchart. The first one is, did you have a meeting? Why did we meet and talk? Okay. So, so that is one. And then... Later on, uh, uh, in addition to the meeting, have we uh, got a specific ask that we, we want to change? And then, and then we categorize it as an investor dialogue. Do we set specific targets and expectations in that particular change? Do we measure it? Do we track it? And then only by passing and acknowledging that those are the characteristics of engagement, we call it a structured engagement. So what does a good engagement uh, looks like? I think that um, enga engagement is a two-way process. So if the target is for companies to come around to the idea that certain change proposed by the investor is a good idea, it's a good for the company to perform, to carry out, then a good engagement would be the company itself acknowledging that the investor actually took part in driving that change, and they are acknowledging their input uh, into that. Yeah, it's it's nice to to have these acknowledgements. I I completely agree, and 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 see why. I'm curious. You said it was a two way process. You also mentioned that the investor has to have a pretty clear idea of what is the ask. Uh -huh. At the beginning, at the initiation of such an episode, is there also the case that? investors still need to learn a little bit what might be relevant for the company, right? There, there seems to be a process of, of where, where it's still fairly open in the beginning, at least I would imagine, or, or do you always come in with a set 
ask and otherwise you wouldn't even initiate the meeting. As I, I mentioned that you come in with a, with a hypothesis of what might need to change. Okay. But hypothesis doesn't mean that you go in with like 500 different KPIs and say, please give me all this information. If not, it's not. That I think is putting a lot of pressure on the company without first listening. So you sh we should go in with a hypothesis, for example, talking to a company. If, um, if say, it's a company that is hoping to establish insetting carbon credits. So, so having offsets in the value chain, such as nature-based solution, uh, so that they have better understanding um, of uh, the offset process that is um, of higher quality, but also support the businesses or possibly the farmers in the supply chain in the low-income uh, countries, then, then that is a hypothesis that, that they should be focusing on. But it wouldn't be up to the investors to say, this is how you should do it, because we will never have the same level of technical knowledge and company-specific knowledge of that process. But the hypothesis itself is it's sound, because this is aligned with the future business model of a particular company, if this is what they want to pursue. So I think the role of the investor is that, can we confirm this is where you want to go or this is how the company is going to contribute to uh, fighting climate change and achieving net zero? And if you are, can you tell us what is possible? So for example, in the recent conversation, we're talking about uh, helping farmers um, to, to deploy technology that can help them track certain KPI. The investor's role is to say, well, we know these are the challenges because we have come across them in other parts of the world that we had a conversation. And how are you going to overcome these challenges? So our investor's role is to prompt based on our broader knowledge of different types of companies and their different operat operating model and business model and prompt those questions so that the company is like, oh, I haven't thought about that. Let me dig a little bit deeper into it. And that's also the learning process as well. But we should always, as investors, humbly listen to the company on what on the journey that they're on and, and to prompt the right questions. So you're saying you have to bring, so listen, but also bring something complementary to the table. And, and that's, of course, not easy because the companies are presumably quite expert at, at what it is, the particular thing that they are doing. What would be perhaps examples of, of complementary insights or inputs that you can bring as an investor? Sure. And and I think this touches the, the investigative engagement element that uh, we talked about as well. Of okay. course, a company would have a, a, a much better understanding of their businesses than the in, investor. But the investors also um, has the ability to talk to other companies. So when um, I... When I mentioned the the uh, the spirit of investigative engagement is for investors to understand who are the anchors in the global supply chain in order to get a better understanding of a sector approach to certain issues. So, for example, uh, we have engaged with a uh, a big uh, OEM, original equipment manufacturer, in a uh, in the apparel supply chain to understand not only whether the apparel industry has a supplier code of conduct or not, and by engaging with the anchor players in the global supply chain, we're able to understand how well the apparel top companies, we call them top codes, 
are implementing their supplier code of conduct? Who is better at doing sort of on-site visits and 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 prompting um, the the factory uh, managers with with better questions or tougher questions? So these are the insights that we we can get as investors. There's also uh, uh, EV materials supply chain. I mean, the global supply chain. There are different types of supply chain uh, in different sectors, and and we will be able to um, get that insights by. Uh, talking to to companies that are sitting in the chain, but maybe not as apparent as we see in the portfolios. Another way to do it, of course, is to do um, on-site visits. Uh, I used to do quite a lot of factory uh, visits that uh, help us to understand the culture of companies. Because we talked a lot about the importance of culture. Regulators have also have papers to talk about the importance of culture of a company. However, for a a global company, you don't just have one culture, you have subculture. And if there are um, processing plants and, and factories, the local culture is is, is very much managed by uh, the, the, the facility manager as well. So on-site visit is, is also important. And sometimes we, we get better insights than just talking to the board members on the top executives through that uh, type of uh, visits. Interesting. This, this idea of not only talking to one company, but to several and cross-validate uh, what you hear and, and, and what they see, I can see how you, in that case, may complement the picture that the company itself may have. What sort of homework do you need to do as an investor before approaching the company? I can see companies you know, rolling their eyes uh, when they have to meet with, with a, potentially a big investor. How do you frustrate them in the first meeting and how do you, you know, what do you need to do to start off on a good foot in this conversation? Well, I try, first of all, I don't try to frustrate company. Sure, but maybe you know how to do it from your experience or you have seen things. Well, I think it, everybody can do it. We're not here to break the company apart. In fact, we're quite the opposite. So let's go in with, at, at the meeting with, with an open mind and, um, We've actually established uh, the do's and don'ts, uh, suggestions of do's and don'ts for our engagement. So in terms of recommendation, our team would recommend start off with uh, an overview of what we like about the company. I mean, who doesn't want to hear what investors like about what they do? Yeah, I couldn't right? agree more. Yeah. Yeah. So we start off with, I have read your reports. I have read your annual reports. I've read your sustainability report. And these are the you know, five things that we like, whether it is an internal carbon price or, or something around how uh, a company has, has taken a much more holistic approach in understanding sustainability, you name it. And, and also highlight which, in, in which page of the report that we find those information. I find this very useful in getting a positive start to a conversation. Because there are a few messages here. First, we're telling the company that actually all the efforts and money and time and the pain of putting all these reports together, we read them because we care. That's a very important point. And secondly, it helps us to set the tone and the agenda of the theory of change. Because if they are so good already, why do they still need to change? Oh, well. That is because we think that you're already doing some of the work, but you're not really bringing out the essence of that 
of that proposition. Let's talk about what we can do better because you already have it. It's mm-hmm. just not optimized. And that kind of conversation will energize the company to say, yeah, it's there already. Why don't we do that a little bit more? Just build on it. So yeah, um, and, and the don'ts uh, would be to start up with something that is probably related to a controversy from 15 years ago and say, what are you doing to do about it? Well, they already know about it, obviously, and, and, and maybe the company has been approached by uh, many investors on the same point. So, in a, and, and I've seen that happening in some uh, group meeting, for example, when we talk about all controversy, they just completely turn off. But what I'm saying here is, it's not that we don't talk about it, it's that we talk about it at the right time and asking the right questions. So if it's something to do with a past controversy, what do we actually want to ask as an investor? Well, we want to know if it is related to a litigation. Is that happening in multiple jurisdictions? If so, what would be the financial impact, right? Do we know that it is going to be a case that is going to be uh, involving a jury? Because that might change the outcome depending on the composition of the jury. And then what has the company done to get a better assurance of the financial impact of those litigation? Have they engaged an external legal expert? Who is it? What is the process they've gone through to understand? So those are the clarification to understand controversies-based-related issue, rather than say, oh, well, this happened 15 years ago or 10 years ago. What are you going to do about it? Um, and, and, and I think that uh, that actually gives us much more concrete uh, understanding of the, of the company in, in their learning. And of course, then besides the exposed handling of, of controversies, there's also the ex-ante element of what are they going to do, what is the company doing in order to strengthen their position in, in preventing uh, future issues. Yes, I think that would be my main question personally. Is it going to happen again and and what are you doing about that? I can really see how it's also a professional validation. I imagine in those meetings there will usually be chief sustainability officer or, or you know people from that department and from my experience it's very valuable for them to have an external validation from an investor saying Yes, you know, you've done a good job here because who else is going to tell them that I think I, I think there's a, a big element in engagement with I think is underemphasized sometimes, you know, on the one hand, you might think, well, you want to have a turnaround story of, you know, doing a company, something completely different from what they've been doing before. But I think there's an important reinforcement element of that, uh, which you've, I think, just described. But we have also approached company with a completely new topic. For example, uh, is uh, responsible uh, AI, right? Um, I started that uh, topic, I think, 2018. Uh, at the time, uh, most people were still thinking that, well, AI is not an ESG topic. And so I'm not sure, sure, I'm not sure why you're working on it. And I remember at the time I said that it will be. And it has, well, certainly this year, um, there's a lot of discussion around generative AI. But rule-based AI has been around for a long time. And uh, I remember taking uh, that paper that I uh, co-authored with a, a lawyer, a technology lawyer, who was also looking at the AI regulations at the time. We talked to, to, to companies and um, some of them say, we're not a tech company, we don't have to worry about it. And of course, that has changed now because every single sector 
um, industry are looking at how um, technology uh, possibly generated AI, but also there are other types as well, can help its business model. Some companies are really open to it, for example, uh, when we engage and said that, well, you need to start off with understanding where the value add could be and the principles and the specific use cases. And those that are more forward looking and bringing their head of data science and AI to the meeting. They said that this is the first time that they meet with an investor because no investor has asked to meet with them before. Mm. And they said, that's great. That means that we're working on something that is not, that is forward looking. Um, and we've seen some good results. Yeah, I was about to ask. So did you, do you think you did succeed in convincing a few companies to think about these issues earlier or better than they otherwise would have? Because I agree now everybody is woken up to the topic. I do not want to claim the credit. The credit is only possible given by the company. But I would say that the questions from investors have resonance within the company. So there are voices already in the company saying, well, this is important. I don't know how to communicate it with senior management with the board. And then the investor voice came in and said, look, I think we need to look into this. And they were like, yes, thank you very much. So so have we succeeded? Um, I think if, if, if there's any success, it would have to be a partnership. It's a partnership between those who are um, who had the forward-looking mindset within companies, and they are the ones who I call champions in companies. An investor um, having the um, the foresight uh, and the conviction to say that uh, we're not bound by the existing ESG uh, basket of topics. We're looking beyond. We're looking at the holistic business model and looking looking at what matters. One reason why I'm quite interested in active ownership is that of the mechanisms of sustainable investing, this is one that is reasonably well supported by academic evidence for, for its effectiveness. So there's a couple of studies that you know, reasonably strongly suggest that uh, shareholder engagement on environmental or social topics actually is followed by improvements uh, among the companies who have been engaged. One side result is that it works mostly or it works more effectively for companies that already have a good performance on on these dimensions. So it's more uh, a reinforcement mechanism perhaps. But I'm also always very curious whether there is something to this turnaround story. So, so is it feasible to initiate engagement with a company that really is abysmal in, you know, on these areas, has never thought about it, doesn't think it's relevant, ignores it. And can you have a conversation in such a case? And, and what happens? Have you, have you seen that? In order to have a turnaround, having only the investor voice is not sufficient. It's one of the conditions you need in order to capture the turnaround value. What else is needed, but from what I've seen from experience, is usually something that's blown up. Maybe there was a big accident, such as uh, Rana Plaza. Uh, that was a, a textile factory collapsing, wasn't it? So like an industry-wide type of incident that wakes up a lot of laggards, and then it trickles down to the whole supply chain, right? Ah, that's an interesting story. Okay, and yeah, tell me more. It can happen at a company level, which 
that would be probably a change in management and mindset of waking up to this like, oh my God, I think we need to do something, but we don't know what to do. And that is the point where an investor with the conviction and the foresight to go in and say, look, let's work on it together. Maybe we need some expertise in a particular area, maybe to change your workflow, maybe strengthen your documentation and governance and oversight, but also training, et cetera. So, so you need some kind of incident to trigger that aha moment, and then investor can, can come in to say, look, let's work on it. Let's do a work, work plan together. So um, Rana Plaza is one that is it's not specific, or I can be specific to a company, but the impact is so huge that it actually changes the standards and expectations of the whole industry, and it trickles down you know, through the supply chain. And those who are um, quick to um, to react and to make improvements actually grew the business in the supply chain because there are only so many manufacturing suppliers that would meet the highest standards of the top coast, right? Yeah, I think that relates to what you were saying earlier of driving change across a broader set of companies and really being a bit of a connector through the supply chain, understanding the needs of the the companies with the big brands and the producers and the intermediaries. That's a part of what good engagement is, <clears throat> is to go beyond understanding the silos of single companies. Yes. And, and recognizing these opportunities when it's worthwhile approaching and, and what's the right time to say, uh, to say what. <laughs> so pretty much as in any conversation, I guess, but, but with higher stakes. Something I wanted to ask as well is, the reputation of active ownership with end investors. I hear mixed things. Some people are, are really convinced that this is the right thing to go. They don't want to be bystanders, right? They want to get involved uh, in, in the companies they're invested in. They would love to see this change. But it's very hard to demonstrate to your end clients what, what is really happening, right? Because as you say, what's easy to observe are the votes. If you vote at the AGM for or against the proposal, that is very easy to show. And some funds, uh, you know, are observed on that metric and people say, hey, 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 you didn't vote for all the ESG proposals. Whereas if you're a bit deeper in the subject matter, you know that not all of these proposals are perhaps useful or meaningful. So maybe you shouldn't vote for all of them. Plus the vote is usually not uh, binding. Uh, and, and finally, most of the action happens before the vote, right? The successful funds, as I'm told, they get their demands met before they need to move to a vote. But, but this clever way of doing it is very hard to show to your customers. And that's why I feel that there is less active ownership than there should be, perhaps, because it is hard to show what you're doing. And because there are questions around how well is it done from the outside. It, it, it depends on what you mean by showing. I can assure you that in, in any firm, uh, the internal auditor would be making sure that the, the records are, are complete. I guess when it comes to end investors, there are different types of end investors. Obviously, if it's an institutional mandate when they do their due diligence and questionnaire that was a, a private through, through those questionnaire will be able to or a a fund manager will be able to provide more specific uh evidence of their engagement but in general i think that asset managers uh, need to up the game in uh, improving quality 
of documentation, whether it is through um, a structured sort of cost CRM system, so database where you can search, you can categorize information, to the, the setting of milestones, how do we track progress? And this is also in the UK stewardship code as well, that engagement should have clear objectives, and then we're able to articulate and, and track the progress as well. So having those um, systems and workflows in place, uh, and that just strengthened it over time, I think is a good start of making it more visible uh, to the end investors um, through the right uh, channels. I suppose I'm always in favor of transparency and including that sort of transparency. I certainly would would love to look at these records as a researcher, but I have my doubts that the 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 normal client would you know have enough time to appreciate that level of detail. What I'm concerned about very concretely is that a fund that has an excellent engagement team may not get labeled as a sustainability fund because of the holdings. They they don't, you know, they don't look very green, even though there's a lot right. of engagement happening, you know, in the shadows. So very concretely, as an end investor, if I have two funds to choose from, how do I differentiate the quality of engagement services that is offered to me as an investor, what would I look for to, to discriminate? More fund managers are now publishing more case studies, whether it is in their active ownership report or as standalone cases, to demonstrate and document uh, how an engagement is initiated, the feedback of the company, the progress, and then the end result. And ultimately, again, I would I would like to seek the company's endorsement uh, at the end of that write-up. And I think those would be the examples that, that an investor should look at because they're concrete. It's not just a number. Because don't forget, well, you and I both understand that any number can be manipulated, whether it is a score or you know anything, because it is, it is contextual. Whereas if you have a case study that highlight, now on this date, this is what we do. This is the action that's been taken. On the investor side, and this is a recommendation, and these are the actions that uh, companies have taken. These are more factual, and I hope that these type of factual disclosure would give an investors confidence that the fund have uh, or the asset manager have a good documentation system that highlights the activities that have taken place that ultimately lead to that change um, above and beyond any scores or. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I would like uh, a credible, you know, well well described case study. I would love to combine it perhaps with with some numbers, and I completely agree they can be manipulated. And what I would love to have in addition, and I don't know if that exists, is I suppose you could certify such a process. Uh, you know, there there are professional certifications for all kinds of things. Why not for active ownership, right? There would be a number of things that I can think of off the top of my head, like capacity, you know, you have to have the right staff. Do you have this Earth. tracking system? Does it fulfill certain minimum specifications that you would want to have? I think that would be, that would offer investors a shortcut to at least, because I'm concerned about funds that simply say they're doing engagement and they're actually not doing anything. I think that's Presently, and I'm not saying that many funds do this, but presently this is a concern you might have as a 
as a client because you just don't know. And if you see one case study, you know, you still don't really know. Is there is there a sort of certification system or do you think that would be, even be feasible? I personally have been exposed to third-party assurance assessment. All right. I think that does exist. I think it's a good idea to have that. And I'm sure that uh, consulting uh, colleagues and friends who are listening to this is music to their ears. <laughs> I personally am I'm open to 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 that idea. I think that's uh, that's good to have that type of assurance process. Great, and let's hope someone is listening and and will have that in in <laughs> in the future. I would certainly love to look at it uh, on the on your manipulation. That is also that's actually something we're we're working on. So there is a concern that relates to the to the academic evidence we have so far about engagement. Is it may be that engaging funds not actually change the company they are just good at identifying the companies that are already changing uh right and that would be that would be a, an easy way to manipulate sort of successful outcomes you would have a bunch of successful outcomes if you just quickly make companies a target when they know they're pretty close to achieving the goal yeah do you but you do you agree that there's at least a risk that that these numbers, if you were to sort of you know put any regulatory emphasis on them, would be would be manipulated in such a way. Is it a manipulation, or is it just spotting a low hanging fruit? Mm. Right. So it's not really a manipulation, and that's why um, I think in good engagement records there needs to be documentation that highlights what is the contribution of the investor, and also going back a little bit is. What is the investment thesis related to this particular change? So, for example, with the documentation that I look at when there was a an engagement that 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 is being scheduled in the record, there should be what what are we expecting from this engagement? Is it an engagement that we know that if there are certain issues that have been addressed, uh, maybe a, a board uh, or a succession issue that that is being addressed at the company, then it would make it more investable. You know that should be in a record. What is the the investment thesis of this particular engagement if it does work out? Mm. And also at the same time, what what would be the consequence of this engagement if it doesn't work out? And, and I'm not saying it is just a matter of oh invest or divest. And I think this is also the problem of this industry to have that binary understanding of it's it's either yes or no. It it doesn't work like that because in in portfolio management you have many different options. You can limit the exposure, you can um, uh, reduce the, the exposure, uh, and then it maybe in, in certain products it needs to be relevant to a particular benchmark. And also in fixed income, for example, uh, you can change your exposure in the new issuance. Do you want to have that new issuance? And what is what is the offering of particular bonds? So, so there are actually many, many different ways of translating that engagement outcomes into investment action that is beyond that binary understanding of of you know investor divest. So I think that is an area that should be further explored if if you know there is any interest from a research perspective that that will give more clarity on on how investment decisions are made in general. Yes, well. I think I I think you touch upon a very important point. Uh, first of all, I agree the arsenal of of sanctions and rewards that you have as an investment fund is much more fine grained than just 
you know, buy and sell. And at the same time, I'm curious, it's my suspicion, that it's very important to that the portfolio manager sort of has your back in the sense that you're not just talking for the sake of talking or or ESG performance, but there is a fund behind you that, you know, depending on what's the outcome of the engagement process, it will be taken into account. Not necessarily that they will right away sell if it's not successful, but at least that the company believes that you know, there there is some investment relevance to to all that exchange of information. Uh, what's your take? It's not the right way to uh, to invest in resources either. That active ownership um, activities and outcome would have to be integrated to um, the investment decision making process. Otherwise, it's just activities on the side, right? And 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 we don't want that. We want activities and resources invested to be to be accountable to um, to the end investors. Don't you think, in the same way that engagement needs investing to be really effective and successful, ESG investing needs engagement dialogue so that companies will know what, what portfolio managers are actually looking for? Well, that is just the responsibility of the investor to communicate what they find as as a, as a good approach uh, of a company and communicate that and 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 voice their concern. That is just, I, I would say that's just a, a, a should be a normal practice. But I'm not sure but it how is. How we? Uh, well, well, if if it is, it isn't yet. Maybe we started with this this podcast, right? Um, but the <laughs> art of engagement, which is uh, the topic of your of the title of this podcast, is the art of engagement. Is is how you communicate that in a way that is palatable, in a way that the company doesn't feel that you're asking them to do something that they that is beyond their limit. And I remember in the earlier days in, in certain emerging markets, um, there were engagement conversations about how, how come you haven't committed to net zero? Some companies just say, we, well, we can't. We don't have access to, we don't even know where to find renewable energy sources and just looking through what's possible in our scope one and scope two, and you ask me to do scope three, they're just not there yet. We cannot, in order for engagement to be to be successful, we cannot ask a company to do what is beyond their capability. You have to help them to think about how to develop that capability so that they feel that they're on the trajectory in the right direction. Then you can ask. And um, and you asked me about you know, bringing in my experience with riding here. In this podcast before, yes, uh, I completely different different topic, but for me, um, real parallel thinking and and learning is is to be able to bring what we know in some one area that is that seems completely different to what we do uh, professionally and still apply that. And I learned this from from training horses and riding. You, no matter how talented a horse is, you have to prepare them in order to execute certain movements beautifully. You can't just say, oh, let's do this. We're going to turn right. We're going to turn left. We're going to do, you know, dancing. You you can't, you simply can't do it because the horse is not ready. Or maybe I'm not ready, right? An entity is not ready. You cannot ask an entity, an organization, an animal, a person to do something they're not ready for. But what we can do is to help them understand that Maybe this is a good idea to do this, and 
what can we do to prepare for it? And once they are prepared, it would be executed beautifully and a good engagement professional should be sitting here and say, oh, this is what should happen anyway. And it just did. It just did. I, I, I love that analogy. So uh, it's almost a great point to finish the podcast, but I, I usually ask my guests looking into the future, what they wish would happen in their in sort of the space that they see. So I'd like to pose the question to you as well. I hope that asset managers in general will become better at articulating what high quality engagement and the outcomes would look like. And that I think over the years we've been chasing numbers, whether it's, oh, let's have higher score because it's supposed to signify that things are getting better. And I think with your research, we understand that there are different now, rating methodologies, and therefore there are the different uh, messages uh, that might come through uh, higher score. So pushing for higher numbers of engagement. We did 10,000 engagement this year, 20,000 next year. We should recognize that there is a risk in pushing higher numbers. So it is the responsibility of asset owners and asset managers to articulate what high-quality engagement should look like, what outcomes we should be looking for, and how it is integrated with investment decision-making so that we can have a true or new face of sustainability or mainstreaming that that have active ownership at the, at the essence um, of what good investment should look like. Wonderful. So uh, lots of work ahead still but thank you so much i learned a lot and i hope our listeners uh, also had valuable insights into what the art of active ownership is all about thank you so much christine for being here thank you for having me julian innovations in sustainable finance a university of st gallen podcast by julian kölbel <laughs>